Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Everybody's brain has got the ability to block negative memories because they are painful and it's a normal uh, kind of like it's, it's your typical coping mechanism. When you are neurodivergent, your emotional regulation, the, the limbic system, this set of different structures in the brain that deals with your emotions, with how you react to the environment, with threat. It can be hypervigilant, which is how I felt all my life, and it's still a struggle. So something that is tiny for anybody else, it may be a really big deal for me. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best Can you eat to improve symptoms of ADHD? That is the subject of the conversation today with the wonderful Dr. Miguel, who is a clinical neuroscientist and applied microbiologist with a long-standing background in human nutrition. He has a BSc in nutritional medicine, a master's in clinical neuroscience, and a PhD in the gut microbiome and mental health, the perfect person to answer this question. According to Dr. Miguel, the top healthy habits for a fulfilling life include eating fermented foods daily, getting a diversity of plants to support your brain gut superhighway, as well as connecting with people who bring you joy and ditching those who are toxic. As part of his giving back, Dr. Miguel is the neurodiversity lead of the Primary Care and Community Neurology Society, also known as the Person-Centered Neuroscience Society, and he supports youth mental health programs at the London-based Body and Soul Charity. He also holds an honorary research fellow position, if that wasn't already enough, at the School of Psychology, Cardiff University. As we do a deep dive into the science of food and neurodiversity spanning a spectrum of disorders, we also talk about Dr. Miguel's personal experience. In 2020, Dr. Miguel burned out and in the middle of a terrifying nervous system meltdown, he had the most wonderful aha moment. As a scientist, he was able to match what the literature says about stored trauma with his own personal experience, realizing the far-reaching consequences of adverse childhood events on and beyond the gut. This time in Dr. Miguel's life, leading to his late diagnosis with ADHD and autism, provided him with the opportunity to layer a trauma and lived experience-informed approach over the evidence-based practice approach that he'd been used to for years. And he will discuss why he firmly believes science should now be focusing on the brain-to-gut downstream communication branch of the gut-brain axis rather than on the gut microbes-to-brain branch. He also has a course on ADHD and diet that is due to launch in November 2023, and you can find his free newsletter at thecreativescientist.substack.com as well on social media at 
Dr. Miguel Mateus. If you head over to YouTube, you can not only watch the podcast in the new podcast studio at the Doctor's Kitchen HQ, but you can also catch me and Dr. Miguel making a diversity bowl that Miguel made on the fly, and it's perfect for those living with ADHD. Remember, one of the easiest ways to support us is to subscribe on our YouTube channel and you can also download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free to get access to all of our recipes and take your knowledge of nutritional medicine to the next level. And in early 2024, Android users will be having access to the app. I know you guys have been asking me about it for years now and I'm pleased to announce that we should be on track to enable Android users to be able to use the app as well. And if you want to be the first to find out, just subscribe to the newsletter at thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash newsletter, and you'll be the first to find out when it is going to be available on your device. For now, onto my podcast with Dr. Miguel. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Miguel, can what we eat improve ADHD? Definitely. So that's the short answer. And now because I'm ADHD, I'm going to give you the very long answer. (laughs) (laughs) So so basically, yes, um, everybody's a little bit unique. So ADHD can be experienced by different people in, in different ways. But definitely, you want to be supporting your executive function in the brain mm-hmm. uh largely that's based in the the front of the brain the prefrontal cortex and uh, in adhd is a lot of uh, emotional dysregulation so mm-hmm. people feel that their emotions are actually um, driving them mm-hmm. more than their logic mm-hmm. um, so doing things in a sequential order or changing from task to task or even just the anticipation of a task can actually make you quite nervy yeah and then you procrastinate and you don't do it and all this kind of stuff so if you take anything that uh is going to give you a quick burst of energy mm-hmm. like a very starchy meal okay. or a very sugary meal mm-hmm. or loads of coffee that might give you a really quick release of energy mm-hmm. but it's going to burn out really quickly as well mm-hmm. so i think the the basis on which people should be thinking about eating to 
I wouldn't say like um, improve their ADHD, but to improve their ADHD symptoms or to improve how they experience their ADHD. Gotcha. Uh, a good balance of protein, uh, complex complex carbohydrates, which carbs get a bit demonized. Yeah, as well. they do. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, carbs are bad. Well, <laughs> yeah. you need them. So um, good protein, whether it's uh, plant-based mm-hmm. or animal. Mm-hmm. Um, plant-based for me, preferably not because I'm a vegan, but mm-hmm. because plant-based uh, protein will also give you fiber, which mm. is really important. Then soften that spike of sugar mm. that's going to keep you energized throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's almost like um, like an ADHD adapted yeah. blood sugar control diet in okay. a way. Yeah. So your good protein, your fiber, uh, minimize anything ultra processed. Mm-hmm. Um, read the ingredients on labels I just use real food as much as possible yeah um so those are broad strokes as to how you manage your ADHD naturally are there you mentioned ultra process yeah are there particular elements of hyper processed foods that litter most mm. supermarkets that can exacerbate ADHD symptoms beyond the sugar and start refined starches that can Put you on a sugar roller coaster definitely i'd say anything that's got names that you cannot pronounce and loads of e numbers some e numbers might be inoffensive maybe just a little bit of coloring that may be based on curcumin for example mm, mm. but some of them have been seen to have an effect on people who are neurodivergent so adhd autistic mm-hmm. Uh, because they may actually block, block the way that you absorb other nutrients. So they may do things to the microbiome and there's now good science on how emulsifiers mm-hmm. and um, things like that might actually have an impact on the diversity of your gut flora. Mm-hmm. And then because of the gut-brain axis, that's a thing we're going to be talking about anyway, the connection between the gut and the brain, your gut microbes are not doing the best job that they can do for you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's going to have an impact on how your brain feels. So anything that when you look at labels, if it doesn't look like food, if it's a coconut, it's a coconut. If it's, a, if it's an apple, it's an apple. There's no mistaking. If it's something that you need to look at the label because it comes in a box, there are many variations of ultra-processed. Yeah. So I, for example, did a clinical trial on uh, comparing people who ate vegan um, sausages and meatballs and burgers. Ah, okay. uh, so uh, fake meats, basically. I don't like the terms, but you know that that's how it yeah. was publicized when it came out, uh-huh. and it attracted quite a lot of attention. It's I'm been sure, cited yeah. a lot, a lot of times. Now <laughs> I get every day I get a citation. Uh, it was a small clinical trial, twenty people in a group uh, replacing their um, uh, animal uh, meat, so mm-hmm. animal uh, uh, proteins, so fish, meat, eggs, and so on with uh, the um, um, plant-based protein mm. and and then the other 20 just continued as they were just eating the regular kind of like British diet yeah and it was really interesting to see the changes in the gut microbiome which was the what we were trying to measure basically mm. uh, the composition had actually changed favorably in people who ate the plant-based um, uh, protein mm-hmm. and we saw something very interesting as well that a group of microbes uh, that produce this thing called butyrate mm-hmm. is a waxy molecule uh, a little bit like wax that you put on your hair or something like that okay. it's that kind of like consistency a little bit like butter uh-huh. it's called butyric acid uh-huh. in, in fact butter has got a lot of butyric, butyric acid, acid yeah. and uh, and that is produced by a group of microbes 
we'll probably talk about them later, but, you know, Fecalobacterium, Roseburia, Coprococcus, you know, and, and so on. And we saw an increase in the abundance of those um, uh, bugs. And also you, we did some analysis on how they produce on their function mm -hmm. and uh, this thing called metabolic pathways of those uh, microbes. And we saw a, a trend. It wasn't significant in in terms of like, you know, a proper statistician telling you this is a significant result, but there was a nice positive trend. So what this is telling you and the hypothesis as well in the study, the way I wanted to formulate it is that not all ultra processed foods are actually the same. Ah, so yeah. if you look at how the company that put the products together, how they put them together and you look at the list of ingredients, there was minimal things that you could think, oh, that's actually nasty. It's going okay. to do me some damage. Mm -hmm. It was pea protein. Okay. So from a pea to the pre pea protein, you need to process the pea. Mm -hmm. And it ended up looking different to the pea. So you couldn't actually figure out from the protein that you see in a powder that is actually made of peas. Yeah. But then the effect on the body was positive. So that bit of ultra processing was actually beneficial to the body, if that makes sense. And they combined it with rice protein, with rice powder, with psyllium husks, with you know sesame seeds, whatever. There was a lot of wholesome ingredients in there, but processed in a way that if you actually went to the manufacturing plant, you wouldn't recognize them from the food. So we can be a little bit too purist as well. And, uh, and we live lives that are complicated and people go, you know, it took me an hour and a half to come here. If I got hungry on the way and I got something from a shop on the high street, I don't want to be freaking out because there's been something ultra processed in my day. Mm. There's always going to be something in your day that is not uh, what you had planned. Absolutely. And I think that kind of um, focusing on controlling everything can actually be quite damaging Absolutely. for your mental health. Absolutely, yeah. I think there is a, this puritanical streak in the conversations that we see online about removing all processing from your diet entirely. And that, as you've just pointed out, is just not possible when you're living in an urbanized environment. Yes, it might be if you live on a farm, but not when you, you're living in a, in a city environment or you know even a suburban environment. Um, and it's interesting because my initial thoughts were uh, potentially if you're having the meat product um, that might be beneficial in some certain cer certain circumstances to some of the ultra processed vegan products or plant based products that we see on the shelves. But I guess the type of processed and I'm saying that in quotation marks uh, processed product that was used in your study seemed to have like really good ingredients in pea protein, psyllium husk. These are all things that we know are uniquely beneficial for the microbes in our in our guts. Do you think there is? I know that was a small trial. Are there other studies that have looked at the qu quite refined and very different sort of uh, unwholesome vegan plant-based products out there? This is growing, but obviously it is the politics of the industry. <laughs> yeah. So it's not in the industry's best interest to actually put sure. themselves out to scrutiny. <laughs> yeah. So this was a little bit of a fluke study in the sense that, you know, they were looking specifically at the microbiome mm. and... Uh, and and it just happened to turn out that way. Anytime that you have a product and you do a, a randomized control trial and you're actually going through the whole of the ethics process that it involves to go through a university and everything else, you just don't know what the science is going to say. Mm -hmm. And you 
it's a bit bad to actually then not publish it because yeah. the results are negative. Yeah. So I think there's big money to be made in plant-based uh, products. So what I was saying before, I most days I wake up and I get a citation. I basically, <laughs> the, the study was published two years ago. It's got something like 70 citations already. Yeah. And uh, which is, you know, I've done other studies before, they get like three citations, yeah, like yeah. four citations, you know, <laughs> like three years later. This has raised a lot of interest. I think people are kind of like interested in the idea, mm. but then they haven't got the guts, for lack of a better word, to to go on, to go ahead and explore that just in case it's negative. Yeah, I, it's very interesting. I was chatting to Robert Lustig on the pod a few months ago, and he did this big project in the Middle East where they looked at processed foods and try to optimize them from an omega-3 point of view, uh, increasing fiber, using more wholesome ingredients like, you know, psyllium husk, for example, that I've spoken about on the pod before. Um, and there seems to be a middle ground whereby you can have sort of the taste, the texture, but also the price point that is acceptable to many people, um, at, which are the benefits, quote unquote, of the, of the processed foods that we see today with some of the added uh, advantages of, of wholesome ingredients. Do you, do you think that, I mean, we're going a little bit left to field here, but do you think that is a potential middle ground, the way forward for, for both food, the food industry and us as a, as a population to improve health? Yeah, I think people like convenience. So when I was looking at the literature before engaging in the study and formulating the, 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 the trial, formulating the hypothesis, the hypothesis basically was a little bit, um, uh, different to what people may have been expecting because what I was saying is that not all ultra-processed foods are actually detrimental mm. to the body. And and then, of course, we were we had an endpoint of the gut microbiome and we were looking at changes in composition and, and metabolic pathways in, in, in microbes, how they actually function. Mm. But um, when I was looking at studies, it was interesting for me to read that... Um, vegans and again my study was actually based on flexitarians so okay. actually people adopting a largely plant-based gotcha. lifestyle but not necessarily going vegan mm. which you know it's not for everybody it's not the commitment is is big and there's a lot of politics involved not everybody wants that kind of thing um lovely if you want it um not everybody does the flexitarian literature was telling me that People actually like products that look like the real product they are trying to replace. Mm. So they had done studies in several places. In I cannot name one right now, the top of the top of my head, but uh, they had done studies uh, comparing um, groups of people given something that looked like um, like plant-based protein, but it didn't have a shape. Mm. Uh, and another group of people given the same, but it actually did look like chicken. It looked like a chicken fillet, or it looked like a, like a sirloin steak. So it, it actually did look like the like the product it was trying to replace. Yeah, and the preference was much stronger for the product that it was trying to replace. Right. Yeah. The texture, the smell, the the look. Yeah. So if you make a, a beef steak, uh, the more it actually looks like beef, people were more attracted to it. Yeah. So. Going I've seen back. some of those as well. They look really realistic. Yeah, they look incredible now. Like the 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 speed at which this industry has has travelled over the last two years is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that tells you exactly what what people want. Mm. So to go from that to something that may 
be a little bit more wholesome, but may not look exactly what what you're trying like what you're trying to replace. It goes back towards the just use whole foods all the time, yeah, which yeah. is more of a commitment. Yeah, I think people want the convenience when it comes to these foods because mm. everybody really can cook from scratch to a certain extent. Mm. You know, even tinned foods or jarred foods are excellent sources of nutrients. You know, they, just because they are cheaper, they they are not necessarily worse for for your body. Mm. So everybody can get some black beans out of a chain and some corn and and something else and mix it up with a bit of olive oil and and make a wholesome salad. Mm. Do you want that? And do you want to invest the time in doing that for you? Or do you want something that comes ready packed and yeah. it gives you the illusion that you're having something else? So yeah. Yeah. there's a lot of psychology involved in this and and also like going deep a little bit into the, the psyche are you worth it? Do you think you deserve that? Mm. So you're investing the time on creating something that is really wholesome. Or are you not that bothered? And you think, oh, no, I'd just rather have the five-minute burger yeah, that comes yeah. in a pack. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, that's a huge point. And I think that doesn't get enough attention because it's very easy and you could look at it through the lens of price. And I would argue you can find healthy, wholesome products at a similar price point. Time, you can, like you just articulated, bung a few things in a bowl, mix it together with some olive oil, and then that's your lunch, and that's cheaper and, and easier than a sandwich. But it's the psyche, it's the, the psychology. Am I worth this? Am I, uh, am I comfortable in my own skin? Do I feel like I deserve it? All those different elements that are a little bit harder to ascertain and a little bit harder to sort of bring out in, in, in a patient or, or in someone that I'm consulting, for example. Um, but I feel that that's an underlying tone that I'm 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 getting as to why people struggle to eat well every day. Um, we're gonna we're gonna do, go into that a little bit later. Yeah, I, I I'd feel. Love to. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to bring it back to foods to improve ADHD. I know that you were involved in a probiotic study, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, where you you gave uh, people pro uh, kefir. I think yeah. it was. Um, is there a, a role for probiotic foods? And ADHD, is, is there any improvement there? Or is it, again, just sort of improving the gut microbiota and improving sugar balance? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? So the study is um, is ongoing. We published um, uh, the a pilot study a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. We then um, just about to publish the study protocol, which is, this is the politics of science and publishing. We're nearly done with the randomized control trials. We've seen a number of people and, and put them through the trial. Uh, we're going to begin writing that and extracting the, the data. It's looking good, uh, but the protocol hasn't been published yet because it's going to be published in a high-profile journal. Oh, okay. And it's literally taken like a year and a half for it to be reviewed. Oh, and, my word. You know, it's yeah. kind of, a, you know. So these are the kind of things that happen in between, you know, behind the scenes in science that people are not really exposed to. Yeah. So it's it's cute that the actual protocol will probably be published like later than the actual yeah. RCT. Right, yeah. So yeah, a long story short, um, the pilot looked at children who were not on medication or on CBT. Mm-hmm. So they have been diagnosed with ADHD and we did require the diagnosis, even though we'll talk about being diagnosed and and, mm-hmm. and just identifying or, you know, later. But in this case, we were looking at um, formally diagnosed by a clinician, um, 
children from, I believe, eight. I may be wrong, but I believe eight to 15. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we looked at the symptomatology, so mm-hmm. severity of symptoms. Uh, and again, in ADHD, there are uh, different symptoms that you can take into account. So you can uh, look at hyperactivity within in, in children. It can be quite um, uh, noticeable. So like tapping, you know, mm-hmm. and doing things like this, or like mm-hmm. tapping with your fingers, um, all of this kind of like nervous kind of stuff is a way to regulate your emotions when there are, there's too much going on in your brain. So it's quite physical, mm. can get irritability. For parents, it can be difficult because they can be a handful and they're just struggling. Mm. Uh, they can also be inattentive. So you can just, you know, I can probably put this here and then forget where it is. And I get into a panic just looking in the room and I go back to the tube station thinking mm. I left it at the tube station yeah, convinced, yeah. and it was there all along. Mm. That's happened to me like all my life. My mom used to laugh at me when I was, at, you know, living in the house because um, I used to leave my keys all the time. <laughs> and I literally, every single time, I went three flights of stairs down to the uh, ground floor and thought, oh my God, my keys. Yeah. And I went back up and she was already at the door of my flat, <laughs> like, you know, with my keys. There yeah. you go. Yeah. And, like things like that and books and yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So that, we looked at all of those and it's a multidisciplinary team. So it's led by Dr. Kate Lawrence at St. Mary's University. Mm-hmm. She's the principal investigator. There are people from Goldsmith. There are um, nutrition people from uh, St. Mary's. So psychology, neuroscience, microbiology. We have uh, Professor Paul Cotta as well mm-hmm. uh, has joined in the later um, studies. So what we're looking at is changes in the gut microbiota. Um, the pilot allowed us to see that we needed to look at function as well. So you can analyze changes in your gut mm-hmm. in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also look at what the bacteria are actually doing, which goes a little bit deeper into the detail. Mm-hmm. So we basically looking at what the pilot um, churned out. Um, I suggested that we needed to look at what the microbes were doing as well. So it's another way of looking at microbes called shotgun sequencing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more precise, so it's different than 16S, which looks at composition. And we look at a number of psychological measures as well. Self-reported, mm-hmm. very important. And I'm a big proponent of self-reported because it goes into something we're going to be tapping into, lived experience. Everybody's experience is different. And unless you ask them, you miss out on that. And it's great to have a number. The number is precise. And statisticians love a number because mm. it's like, you know, it's easy to process. If you ask me how I'm feeling and I just go on and on and on, yeah. and you need to transcribe that, you yeah. need to then process the interview, you need to code it, you yeah. need to understand what are you looking for in what I've just told you in an mm. hour. You mm. just let me talk. So the bit in between are these things called patient reported outcomes. You basically have like a structure and you follow some structure. So it ends up being like a number, but you've taken the person into account. And then loads of other things that the psychologists know better than me because they are kind of, uh, you know, um, sleep measures and uh, a thing called actinography as well, which tells you about different functions of the brain and so on. Right. So basically we put all of that together and the results look good. So drinking um, kefir um, is is more complex than taking a probiotic ah. because kefir gives you, it's is a whole food uh-huh. and it gives you, apart from the probiotic bacteria, it gives you probiotic yeast as mm-hmm. well. 
So this is a, a, a booming field in the mm. in the microbiome field because we talk about lactobacillus and bifidobacteria all the time. Yeah. These are the kind of like stars of the show. Yeah. But yeast are hugely important. Uh-huh. We tend to think of yeast as bad, uh-huh. but you, we used to think of bacteria as bad. Yeah, exactly. Years yeah. ago, and yeah. now it's all the rage. So yeast have a very, if I had to summarize in a quick word how they how they function, they have a very interesting way of functioning. Well, two ways. One is they crowd out other microbes because they take out a lot of space in the gut. And the gut is a limited room. And if you invite 20 people into a room, you're going to be more crowded. And and you're hoping that the nasty people will leave the room. Okay, all right. You invite nice people in, (laughs) the boring people or the nasty people will go. We'll talk about that later. And then the the second way is that they stimulate the immune system. So they kind of gently touch the lining of the gut. And uh, the gut contains a lot of the immune system in the body. A lot of what happens with how your body reacts to infections stems from the gut. So if you gently stimulate how your gut cells are producing mucus, for example, that mucus feeds beneficial bacteria that Mm -hmm. they can chomp at it and and feed on, on the actual mucus. The mucus is very rich in a mix of um, protein and carbohydrate, Mm -hmm. and it contains a lot of nutrients. So then the beneficial microbes that you want to stay in your gut are thriving, basically, especially the ones that like to live next to the mucus, Mm. and there's a whole section of them. And they happen to be bugs that produce this thing called butyrate. Again, we we go back to the same things. And butyrate kind of like lubricates the communication between the gut and the brain. So you have this weird thing going on between the gut and the brain and people say the gut is the second brain and all this kind of stuff but nobody really understands even like you know i did my doctoral degree in that gut microbiome and mental health if i had to tell you in like two words how it works it's like very difficult because there's so many things going on but it's almost like you have a, a an internet connection um sending messages like a broadband connection between the gut and the brain and you have loads of different actors and gut bacteria are almost like the protagonist in this in this thing. But the actual system itself is really important. So mm. how healthy is the, the actual gut lining? How healthy is your digestion from your mouth to the other end? Mm. If you're not chewing properly, you're not going to get the opportunity to extract nutrients that then may be needed mm. further down in the small intestine or in the colon, if you're really stressed, and that's the 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 the, the um, top to bottom uh, um, branch in that communication, if you're really stressed, what your body is going to go into is this kind of like fight or flight response, and uh, we told you know um, fight or flight, there's going to be a lion coming to get you and all this kind of stuff, mm. but there's no lion, mm. it's just your bills your Instagram notifications, your whatever, you know, anything that is just requiring your attention all the time. Right. It's sending you into this mild state of panic. Your brain is thinking it's panic, but then you're saying, no, it's fine. It's not. So you're constantly using energy. Mm. And this for ADHD people is actually very exhausting because you, you have a more difficult time actually switching from one thing to the next because you might be hyper-focusing on something and yeah. it takes you away from that and then you get resentful and there's a lot going on in that brain that people who are not ADHD don't need to 
content with. But there is that broadband uh, communication system and there's a wire, it's called the vagus nerve. And again, you have heard about it. I'm sure you've had loads of people talking about the vagus nerve here. Um, and then there's the Wi-Fi, which is, you know, hormones, um, tiny bits of protein that are uh, these things called peptides mm -hmm. that are the basis for things like serotonin and dopamine and, you know, neurotransmitters that are, again, communicators in the brain. They do things differently outside of the brain. So there's this thing that people say serotonin is mostly produced in the gut. Mm -hmm. And to an extent it's true, but it doesn't mean that the serotonin in the gut then goes into the brain and then it makes you be happy all the time. It's a lot more complicated than that. And there's this butyrate and butyrate, again, I, I refer to it as a lubricant because if you have all of those cables wiring and all of that communication going on, it's almost like getting an upgrade onto your Wi-Fi. So you go from like very poor Wi-Fi to, you know, to cable Wi-Fi. Uh, like one gig each way. Yeah. And that's what Butyrate is doing, is promoting that really smooth communication between the gut and the brain both ways. I, I really like that 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 term you used. Butyrate is lubricating the connection. Uh, and and this Wi-Fi analogy is pretty up for me because I've had I've struggled to get Wi-Fi in this building. <laughs> so I'm loving these analogies. So you, need a bit of, you need to call your Wi-Fi Butyrate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I need some sort of lubrication to the Wi-Fi. Yeah. I just wanted to double click on the serotonin point yeah. you made there because I think you're right. I hear this a lot about serotonin, mainly produced in the gut. And whilst, yes, it does have an impact on mood, um, you're probably going to tell me it's it's complicated and we don't have a clear answer. But what why does why is serotonin produced in such quantities in the gut if it doesn't have the impact on on mood directly? Yeah, so serotonin is produced by um, cells in the gut called enterochromaffin mm -hmm. cells. Long mouthful name, but the most important thing is that it's produced to allow you to go to the toilet because mm -hmm. it helps with gut motility. Right. So if you haven't got enough serotonin, you probably struggle having a regular poo. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is one of the main things that it does. It's also a regulator of um, vasodilation. So basically how your arteries are expanding and contracting uh, to the rhythm of the heart. And then that translates into the expansion and contraction of tiny capillaries that are kind of a bringing oxygen to tissues that, you know, in, in all parts of the body. Mm. So it has a role in that as well. Um, so it's completely different roles to what it does in the brain. So this is called um, peripheral serotonin. It's mostly produced in the gut and then used peripherally. Ah. So not in the brain. Okay. And, uh, and then you have the serotonin in the brain that does regulate mood. Mm -hmm. It regulates to a certain extent appetite as well. Mm -hmm. Um, it can make you feel connected in if you produce it at the same time as other hormones as well. So it's not just high serotonin mean, means more bonding, more connection. But if you produce it in an environment that leads to connection and you're hugging somebody, you might feel that you love them. So it's kind of like the hormone of uh, or the neurotransmitter of love and, mm. and bonding and connection. And for example, mothers and, and children, when they are looking at uh, at each other's eyes or when you're looking at a dog in their eyes they do that as well 
we produce this thing called oxytocin, which is another peptide that makes you feel connected to that person. You're probably producing oxytocin because I'm looking into your eyes and mm. doing the same. It helps understand the situation. Mm. It also has a double edge. The oxytocin is, uh, if you look at evolutionary medicine, is there to assess whether you, the person you're talking to or you're looking into their eyes is an enemy. Mm. So you need to be, you know, kind of like judging, do you trust them or not? Mm-hmm. So I think it's just been blown into is the hormone of love. And, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you want to hug everybody and kiss them. It's kind of like it's got a double-edged sword. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and then if you produce that with serotonin, then it's a lovely kind of like bonding experience, and is what you feel. If you had to kind of like talk about the chemistry of love and 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 attraction and so on, this oxytocin, the serotonin, and dopamine as well, because dopamine is about anticipation mm. about what's going to happen. And again, another little bit of a myth about dopamine is that oh, get your dopamine by completing tasks. Dopamine doesn't give up a damn about completing. It's all about what's going to happen. Right. And that's why it's really involved in the reward system. And uh, and when you look at the negative elements of dopamine, it's involved in gambling and sexual addiction yeah. and uh, drug addiction, any um, substance kind of uh, um, abuse. I worked in, in mental health nutrition for a while, like six years in a multidisciplinary team led by a consultant psychiatrist working with people who lived with um, addiction issues and uh, uh, you see the pattern psychologically in this kind of like profile of person is all about what's going to happen and then once you've done it it's a you know whatever if you are really it's up the expectation of doing the drug mm. and then you do the drug mm. or the drinking and it doesn't satisfy you as to why we can talk about that later, you mm. know, and and it resonates a lot with food as well, yeah. and with trauma, with loads of things that might be going on in somebody's brain. But yes, I, I find it cute that you know there's a lot of Instagram activity about like oh, completing your task will give you a, <laughs> dopam- a hit of dopamine. Dopamine is not produced by completing a task; it's produced by the anticipation of the task, and it's about preparing you for for the task yeah. maybe a little bit produced when you complete the task but that in itself is not it's not going the... to give you the you gotcha yeah yeah, yeah. i think yeah. this is great because I, I i i hear these sort of like little nuggets uh across social media and to have it from a from you to explain it in that way is just a lot clearer in my mind as well and you know we've basically been speaking about the gut brain axis if you were to articulate what the gut brain axis is in a couple of sentences to a newbie without the sort of lengthy explanation and how complicated <laughs> it is. How would you describe it? Yeah, so it's the gut brain communication system. So it's the gut talking to the brain mm-hmm. and the brain talking to the gut. The brain talking to the gut is going to be more binary, it's going to be more kind of, uh, you know, yes, no messages, go to the toilet, do not go to the toilet. Um, you know, mostly it's about that, mm-hmm. really. If you look at narrowing down what it's doing, um, processed food, do not process food because you're stressed. If you're stressed, you don't want to be using energy in your gut to be processing food because mm. the stress response wants you to get away from that lion, imaginary lion that's going to come and get you. If the lion is going to come and get you, your brain is going to reduce the appetite response 
doesn't want you to have a sandwich and mm. have a chat with the lion, wants you to leg it from the lion. Yeah. So it's, uh, and it's also going to stop the juices being produced that are going to allow you to process that food. So people with IBS, for example, with problems that having got a label, uh, so many people, bloating, gas, um, uh, irregular times they go to the toilet and all this kind of stuff, uh, allergies, mm. all of this, they are not processing food properly because their brain is hyperactive, is saying to the stomach, do not produce stomach acid, slow down, do not churn the food into into a little baby food, kind mm. of a consistency so it can be processed. Okay, so I go back to the definition. Mm. So the so there is that, that going down from the from the brain to the gut. Yeah. From the gut to the brain, you're basically getting um, again that lubrication in the system. You're getting kind of a signals from the environment. So butterflies in the stomach typically is this kind of intuition, something's gonna happen. There's a lot of neurotransmitters involved in that kind of thing as well. Um, and you're getting a better absorption of nutrients that are going to take a really play a really big role in in the brain. And uh, the brain is a heavy machinery with lots of cogs. It gets easily inflamed. Mm. It can get inflamed because of the activity. It's a lot of uh, what we call free radicals, basically from friction, from just the way that it works. It's a heavy supercomputer. So it's almost like getting heated and then it needs to cool down at night and kind of uh, process what's happened during the day. By having a healthy gut, you have a better chance to process what's happening in the day, to cool down the system. So in the morning, it's actually working better again. Uh, and and in a way, that would be a simplistic way to, to talk about that. It can go into many different avenues. Even you look at a healthy person versus a person with a susceptibility to anxiety or depression or a neurodevelopmental condition like ADHD or autism. There are many different avenues that that the health of the gut microbiome can actually um, have an impact on the brain. But in general, is to calm down what might be happening in the brain. That is mostly your immune system in the brain reacting to things and your central nervous system reacting to things. So we, as a species humans, are very good at picking up signals from the environment and the brain just goes on one and starts kind of, a, you know, and everybody I'm sure can relate how you need very little input for your brain to start thinking about things. That uses a lot of energy. When you're using energy, it's almost like if you imagine the brain as a supercomputer and it's processing a lot of information, it's heating up, there's almost like smoke coming out. There are immune cells in the brain that get heated. They turn into super active. I want to kill everything that may be a threat. And that produces some toxins in the body that they, in the brain that needs to, they need to be cleared out. It happens normally in the night when you're asleep, but then again, we don't sleep as much as we need to, or we break our sleep because of exposure to screens late at night or caffeine or alcohol or a diet that is not conducive to good sleep, uh, stress and so on. So there's a lot of uh, stuff that kind of yeah. like converges. Yeah, yeah. And, and it goes to just how complicated this topic is because you can go down threads and that thread has an impact 
on lots of other threads yeah. and other threads have an impact on that as well. So you yeah, just, yeah, yeah. It's all you know, connected. diet and sleep and et cetera. Um, a lot of people talk about neurotransmitters being produced, you know, one of them being neuroton- uh, uh, serotonin. Um, you have those short chain fatty acids, your acetate, propionate, uh, butyrate we were just talking about. Um, what, what is the, just to zoom in in a second and we'll zoom back out because I, I want to keep the sort of listener on a journey of where we're going <laughs> and the viewer. Um, what is the mechanism by which these neurotransmitters actually uh, have an effect on the brain? Do they actually cross the blood-brain barrier in certain circumstances? Because I think there was a suggestion that serotonin was doing that. Now you've articulated already that that's not necessarily the case. Are there other metabolites of uh, digestion in the in the large intestine that that can cross the blood brain barrier in certain circumstances. So a lot of the neurotransmitters that are produced peripherally stay peripherally, mm-hmm. um, uh, but you do have the precursors. So you have the building blocks. Okay. So what happens is that you have a meal that is rich in tryptophan, for example. Um, uh, off the top of my head, like foods rich in tryptophan, um, beans, uh, if you're looking at like plant-based, beans always yeah. have everything. Yeah. Because they're, they're amazing. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, poultry is yeah. typically the thing that, you Turkey. know, if you look at dietetic <laughs> books, it's like, yeah. you know, it's top of the list in, yeah. in um, tryptophan. So you'll produce some serotonin using that tryptophan. You'll change that tryptophan into more digestible versions of that tryptophan, mm-hmm. of that amino acid mm-hmm. that can actually cross the blood-brain barrier. Depending on how you, if you're looking just at serotonin and without getting into a chemistry class, depending on how uh, diverse your, your gut biome is and depending on how many of the beneficial microbes you have versus potentially other microbes that are detrimental to the gut because mm-hmm. they produce substances that damage the gut lining. Um, so depending on this balance, if the balance is on the good bugs, then you have a better chance to produce positive versions of these tryptophan serotonin compounds mm. that can go into the brain and they can be converted into serotonin and they have anti-inflammatory activity and they feed into the right channel. So you get the most out of that serotonin. Gotcha. If you don't have a, an, a, an amazing balance in the gut, like most people will will fluctuate from day to day, but if your balance consistently is towards the bad, um, bad bugs or the the, bad, the, the, gut, the, the the bugs that are in the gut but you don't want too many of mm-hmm. on a regular basis, then you're more likely to produce negative versions of that serotonin compound that will also end up in the brain and will be neurotoxic. Ah, okay. So uh, serotonin as a, as, a, as a tablet, if you could have it, you know, ha- have this serotonin tablet, if you took it in your gut, it's very difficult for it to actually make it to the brain in that current form. But versions of it can actually go through the blood-brain barrier. I could tell that the way you answered uh, that the question around serotonin, um, you were careful not to say bad bugs and good bugs because I yeah. think there is 
a bit of a binary explanation that we're yeah. used to yeah. when describing uh, our, our gut flora. Yeah. In uh, that, oh, these are bad and these are good. We're actually now we're finding out some of those bad guys are actually doing quite a lot of good stuff yeah. at the same time, and it's really around balance. And so that leads me to my my next question, which is about gut testing more broadly. Yeah. So you, you mentioned shotgun sequencing, the 16 um, uh, S uh, RNA. Uh, that gives a different sort of fidelity to the investigations that we have. How useful do you think it is for people to understand or to to actually do gut testing on a regular basis if they are asymptomatic, i.e. they don't have any gut issues and they just want to know, versus if they do actually have, let's say, IBS symptoms or a diagnosis of, of IBS, for example. Do you think it's useful for people to have this sort of knowledge or do you think there are things that we can do without the unnecessary uh, the unnecessary detail so it is useful but and i've worked in microbiome testing for a long time so mm. obviously I, I love the information you get you get from it but equally it can get obsessive and mm. that's the risk so what people need to take into account is that the microbiome is like imagine trying to take a snapshot of London today. So you take a photo of London where you see, you know, how many people with like different faces, physiognomies, races, you know, whatever are in London at that particular time. And then you start making plans as to, I'm gonna build this housing here and I'm going to make three new parks and blah, blah, because there are so many people who are young and they need school, so okay, let's, no cap, I know that, you know, 10 schools and three more hospitals. You take a photo of London three months later and it's completely different. Mm. So the risk is that if you're going to make changes that are wholesome, all-encompassing, take into account your psychology, take into account you, why do you want to make those changes? What are you, what are you chasing with those changes? Then I'd say, if you're happy that the, the right reason is coming from within, go ahead and do all the explorations. If you're going to go into the small detail and you get freaked out because your fecalobacterium was, you know, 11% of your microbiome last time you tested and now it's 7% and you go into a complete frenzy of like, you know, I wanted to increase. So, oh, my Ackermansha is so low and mm. surely that's bad for me because I'm trying to lose weight and Ackermansha is the skinny microbe and, you know, like, you know, whatever. Then that is completely the don't do it mm. because that's going to send you down a downward spiral. Mm. So, and I want people to actually learn yeah. about things. And, and again, if you look at it from the point of view of testing, if you go to your doctor regularly to get your cholesterol checked or your iron or whatever, it makes sense to keep an eye on that if you've had a hint that your cholesterol may be on the, you know, on the border of not being good or whatever, mm. you wouldn't just do that and then just not have another cholesterol test for 10 years. Mm. So it makes sense to kind of like keep an eye on it within reason. That in Spain, people freak out about cholesterol quite a lot. So it's very rare that anybody's got less than maybe like three blood tests in a year. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. In, uh, <laughs> the Spanish NAS is, NHS is like full of people like you know freaking out about their cholesterol. <laughs> My dad has oh, been. Wow. Yeah, it's it's like a you know like Brits talk about the weather. <laughs> like Spanish people talk about cholesterol. It's like how are you? How is your cholesterol? My triglycerides are really good. You know, they, there's a lot of prevention okay. in Spain as well, so that's good. The system is slightly different, so that that is a, a good element. But people are very. 
um, they've got a hypochondriac kind of like streak to their personality. I right. think it's the culture is like, you know, and has that translated into better cardiovascular outcomes? Do we know? Yeah, 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 definitely. There's, really? uh, you know, that, and there's loads of studies done on cardiovascular so prevention and cardiovascular, cardiovascular health. And the PREDIMED study was done in Spain of as well. And, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and there was a whole branch of, of that. The PREDIMED study was a study done. It was one of the iconic studies initially done on the microbiome and uh, different um, health uh, outcomes, basically. And cardiovascular health is one of them because it was done by people in the University of Navarra, which is one of the um, best places in the world to have cardiac care. Mm. So there's a university hospital in there. And uh, yeah, so definitely it's, um, it's, it, 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 uh, it, I think it's the context as well, like Mediterranean eating and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, so going back to testing, why would you want to test? Um, so you learn a lot about composition if you do a 16S test. So it's not better or worse than shotgun. It's just different. So a blue jacket is blue, a green jacket is green. It's not better or it's just different. So 16S is telling you about how the microbiome uh, it's almost like building a catalog. Mm. So, and it goes through a lot of processes, but then the person gets um, percentages. Mm. So it's abundance of micro microbes like lactobacillus, rosaburia, ruminococcus, whatever. Now, to interpret this, sometimes you need to bring it down to a simplistic level. And you were talking about good bugs and bad bugs. And some bugs get a bad report for, I don't know, for some years. And then suddenly there's one study that looks at how a type of ruminococcus may not be bad, may actually be the next probiotic. Yeah, yeah. And then people start thinking, okay, so all ruminococcus are good. And then there's an understanding of biology that maybe the, the person on the street doesn't care about, which is you go into levels of how those bacteria are classified and Rominococcus is this thing called um, a genus. It's, it's a big group. Yeah. And then you have some nasty Rominococcus that can cause some damage and they have been seen to be detrimental to the body. And they are the species. And you have some species that may be detrimental, some species that may be um, beneficial. Beneficial, yeah. And maybe groundbreakingly beneficial. Yeah. So Rominococcus bromi, for example, is supposed to be an amazing thing. And... There are loads of studies being done on it. Rominococcus gnabus without G is supposed to be detrimental. And there's loads of studies reporting how you could have infections from it and, you know, whatever. Right. So you have the two. Now, 16S is really good at looking at things very accurately to that level that doesn't go into the species. When you go into the species, it kind of like loses fidelity. Ah, okay. So it gives you an understanding roughly of how your gut is doing because your gut changes a lot. And you even have below the species, you have strains which are even more specific, which you could have the rupee strain, mm. I have the Miguel strain of the same microbe mm. because it's learned to behave differently in, in our bodies. So, and now what we are learning is that strains um, have their own characteristics and they can actually give you either a benefit or a detriment. So it all gets a little bit tricky when yeah. you're looking at it from a high level. Yeah. It does give you an understanding, are your lactobacillus low? Are your bifidobacterium low? Because mostly they are beneficial and you can hardly go wrong by supplementing lactobacillus by drinking 
kefir, for example, or eating more yogurt or, mm. or feeding your bifido with um, fiber-rich foods. Like bifido has an affinity with this thing called inulin, which is in chicory, it's in Jerusalem artichokes. Uh, you know, it, it can feed from other um, fatty acids that are made in the gut by other microbes as well. So it's difficult to get it wrong when you target specific microbes. Yeah. Butyric producers that I love, I think they are the next frontier on okay. how we need to be tackling the microbiome. Fecalobacterium, there's a microbe called Fecalobacterium prosnitzii that's quite famous. It, it makes a lot of butyrate and there's a lot of it. So when you measure somebody's gut, it's difficult not to see probably like 10% of a person's microbiome is going to be Fecalobacterium. Huh. Rosaburia might be like four, five, seven percent. Right. So they are substantial compared to tiny lactobacillus might be a 0 0.05. Right. So, yeah. you yeah. know, in comparison, they are really active, mm. but they are tiny, tiny. Uh -huh. You could, if you're really, really active in your lactobacillus, you could have a 0 0.5 or something, but it's, it's not a substantial amount of the microbiome. When you're looking at shotgun, you're looking at specific things. So again, 16S is like you're casting a net, you're picking everything up, and then you're classifying it. This is lactobacillus, this is blah, blah, blah. This is, you know, and you create this kind of like, like a library yeah. system. Yeah. And in fact, when you're talking to the bioinformaticians, the people behind the scenes doing the, the um, clever things, yeah. <laughs> there are different libraries that you can actually tally up what you're picking up from your poo against. So you're comparing that what is in there is actually that. Now with the um, shotgun, it's literally just like fishing for one particular fish. So it's almost like a shopping assistant that only goes to Gucci. Okay. So you say, darling, I only want Gucci. You know, you got Bond Street, but don't get me anything from any other brand. I only want Gucci. Okay. And yeah. you're basically using that assistant to Gucci and it only comes back with Gucci goods. Right. So you know exactly what you're getting. You're getting yeah. your Gucci bag and your scarf and whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then you send them out again and they go Louis Vuitton or they, you know, yeah, they go yeah. Primark, you know. Yeah. But you're getting, <laughs> you're, you know exactly what you're getting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and with the 16S, you haven't got that fidelity. Uh -huh. But then Shotgun doesn't tell you about everything because you haven't, you haven't got, got to... Bond Street and just like, you know, got information from all the shops. Mm. You've just gone specifically to one of the shops. Right. So you just basically, you need to program the software in a way that, yes, it will be very precise that what you have got is particularly lactobacillus, lungum, substrain, mm. blah, blah, blah. And, mm. and you know exactly that is that. But you're missing out on the whole community. Right. So in an ideal world, you'd have like a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, as yeah. opposed to just basically assume that X, Y, and Z bugs are good bugs. X, Y, and Z bugs are bad bugs and then give them that reputation because mm. science is fluid. Yeah. And you need to sit on the fence a little bit because if you go too far onto saying something is whatever, you're going to have a harder time later saying, actually, you know, I was wrong. And this is now good. And there's a lot of that going on in uh, in the microbiome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so complicated. And I, I love the analogy. It's cleared it up for me in my head as well. And if we were to sort of step back and the listener and the viewer is like, okay, great, I get it. Gut testing is complicated unless I'm really doing it with a, a clear reason. I'm being 
uh, taking a targeted approach. What are the general things that I can do beyond sleeping well, eating enough fiber, lots of diversity in my diet? You mentioned kefir that you're particularly excited about because of the yeast content. What are the yeasts that you're, specifically what are the yeasts that, that you're excited about? And are there other probiotics uh, in food that would be better than a targeted probiotic, excluding the sort of specific circumstances where you might use a, sub, a, a probiotic supplement? Yeah, so I'm excited about um, kefir because, not only because of the yeast, that there are a few, and it depends on whether it's real kefir or whether it's, um, yes, kefir yeah. cultures. Mm. So you can make kefir with this thing called kefir grains. They look like weird, like little creatures, like little sponges or something. Mm. And they're a combination of yeast and bacteria or like a scoby, like people are more familiar with the scoby for a kombucha. Mm. It's, it's technically it's the same thing, but with different a different community of microbes. And what they are doing, they are metabolizing, they're digesting the lactose in the, in the milk and even some of the proteins and they're just ma making this thing called kefir. So if you make it that way, then you have the full whack of microbes. Or if you buy it from somebody that has that kind of thing, if you don't want to make it at home. If you're just buying the kefir from the shop, what you're getting is a yogurt with added kefir cultures, which is typically lactobacillus kefiri, mm. another couple of you know similar bugs. And so you're just getting if you in your regular yogurt you might get you know two or three different microbes in your kefir you might get you know 10 15 according to what powder has been added to the process right. it doesn't make it necessarily bad i'd still have the one from the shop because if you compare it with yogurt you're getting more for your buck uh -huh. so for me kefir is a winner always okay the only thing is that i also like yogurt and i don't like to say i just <laughs> yeah. because it's good for me <laughs> yeah yeah i don't i like the creaminess of yeah, yeah Greek it's completely yogurt. different yeah it's yeah. completely different experience yeah. to the kefir yeah. to make a kefir like that it's difficult and then yeah. you need like added stuff to the yogurt industrially and then you get into the processing yeah. you want a kefir that's thick set like greek yogurt is likely to have something added to it typically starch or something and i don't want to be messing around with that mm. so just keep an open mind. Uh, but kefir is nice because it's got like things called postbiotics as well, which are quite trendy, which literally are dead cells, uh, fragments of the membranes of the cells. They still have the ability to stimulate your immune system. Uh, it, it's also the, the fatty acids that are being produced within the product while it's still alive. So there's still butyrate being produced and acetate and so on. And that's still, that's also called a postbiotic. So it's got a nice mix. It's a whole living ecosystem. And, and I like that a lot. Uh, people who are um, sensitive to lactose, they can have this thing called water, kefir, which in some studies it has been seen to contain up to 52 different microbes. Wow. Okay. Um, so it also depends on how you do it. You put in sugar into the fermentation. So some people freak out. Most of the sugar is eaten by yeah. the microbes, but you know, it's a bit like kombucha. You know, you need to put the sugar in for it to get the kick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's the same kind of like principle. Um, so I would say, yes, my favorite, but if you look at studies that have been done recently, like people from um, University College Cork, um, John Cryan, oh, John Ted Dynan, mm -hmm. 
they did a really interesting study that was published last year, uh, combining looking at the microbiome of people uh, who participated and also self-reported measures. So again, PROMS, this patient-reported measure, is looking at partly of the lived experience of the person, but in a more controlled way. So looking at um, stress, there's this thing called perceived stress that is a, a well-validated questionnaire. It's 11 questions, very simple to answer. And from different angles, you're basically answering to the researcher how stress is affecting you. And, uh, and literally by combining a number of different fermented foods as opposed to just focusing on one and uh, looking at there were students um, stressed by exams. So this is a typical environment because it's quite ethical because mm. you're not putting somebody through a stress yeah, per yeah, se. Yeah. You're looking at somebody who's going to have the stress anyway. Yeah, it's a natural and you, experiment. Exactly, yeah. it's a natural experiment. Uh, it's very nicely done. I love these guys. They're so elegant. Uh, mm. They just produce so many studies. Mm. Like you, you know, literally, you can have a new study every day. And um, and literally, the results were that those in the group that had the typical Irish diet, which is very typical very similar to the British diet, following the eat well guidelines, kind of, so to speak, healthy enough, but without fermented foods. Right. The addition of fermented foods added um, a, a layer of wholesomeness to, to their gut-brain connection, right. and it reduced the perceived stress, basically. So there was a reduction in perceived stress in how... So perceived stress is about how you react to a potential stressful, potentially stressful situation. Yeah. They, they, it's almost like um, if you want to make it into something that is not, but you know, you could make it into improved resilience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You become more whatever to stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And how, how, do you remember the dose of the? Yeah. So literally, least? three. I think they're recommending three, at least three portions, um, and it doesn't need to be a huge amount. But they, in, in a nutshell, is a variety of different fermented foods. So they recommended um, kefir, uh -huh. but they also um, kimchi or sauerkraut. Okay. Uh -huh. um, sourdough. Uh huh. Uh, and again, sourdough is a funny one because you don't get the the live yeah. microbes. Yeah. The microbes, by the time you bake them, you fry them, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But you get the dead microbes, so you get postbiotics. Post gotcha. Mm -hmm. So the actual um, starter is rich in lactobacillus mm -hmm. and so on and some yeast, and mm. then you kill them. So it's got that kind of a, um, probing the immunity of the gut gently mm. by by the dead microbes. And but Yeah, so literally what they are saying is combining... Um, a, a fiber-rich diet with extra um, probiotic foods yeah. is actually beneficial for that gut-brain communication. And there was another study published in, um, I believe the journal was Cell, and uh, it was a couple of years ago, and they compared a fiber-rich diet with uh, a fiber-rich diet plus probiotic foods. Oh, yeah, that was foods. Sonnenberg's uh, lab, yeah. I think, Stanford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. it was that's a great the one. study. And, and literally it's the same. So fiber was kind of like version one. Yeah. Everybody is aware now that fiber is there for a reason, you know, and, and if you have more fiber, you might get a little bit gassy. Mm. That's telling you that your microbes are doing their job. Mm. Everybody, everybody has wind. It's natural. Um, and then if you add a layer of um, 
what people call probiotic foods, fermented foods. Mm -hmm. You know, you can get very purist as well. Yeah, Some yeah. people say they are fermented, are not probiotic. Okay, <laughs> probiotic is means pro-life. Fermented have been fermented by microbes that are typically beneficial. Yeah, I'm not gonna get too funny about yeah, it. Yeah. I think it's just ECI it sounds nice. Probiotic yeah, yeah. foods. Yeah. So fermented foods. If you have a range of them. I think that's my philosophy anyway in life. Just a little bit of everything yeah. that you think is good for you yeah. and that makes you feel good is likely to be better than just focusing on something like really massively and Absolutely. going, I'm just only going to have mushroom powders. You were telling me about mushroom, <laughs> yeah. mushroom coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm only going to have that. And I'm oh, definitely have... not mushroom coffee. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think the mushroom coffees out there taste horrible. Yeah. I haven't tried a decent one yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But I'm trying to like add a little bit of mushrooms into my drinks just to see what the effect yeah, is. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. experimenting. Non-psychedelic non mushrooms anyway, yeah, 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 yeah. for now. <laughs> yeah, especially at the start of the day before this podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, you, you know, in, in, uh, on that note about how people can get quite uh, sort of fixated uh, on, you know, whether something is fermented or probiotic or postbiotic. The other thing I think many listeners will have experienced when they go to a health food store is when they peruse the probiotic aisle, or even, you know, the fermented food aisle, it will say it's got X number of strains, it's got, you know, 5 billion CFUs, colony-forming units, uh, or ours has got 15 colony-forming units. So this is, you know, uh, people make the assumption in the head that this is better or stronger than mm -hmm. the other. How if you, if you had to educate someone navigating the sort of complicated health food aisle in a supermarket or a health food store, what kind of things would you advise them beyond, you know, just go for the fermented foods, get diversity in, ensure you've got high fiber? Are there any sort of extra um, trinkets of information that you would give them when, when trying to decide between which probiotic? Yeah, so in general, if you, have a, if you haven't got a concern, you just want to make your life easier and benefit from better digestion and mm. so on, uh, the evidence points towards multi-strain so mm -hmm. anything that has got more microbes is going to be is is a wide spectrum so in a way there may be fewer studies on some of the um ingredients than on some of the others but mm -hmm. by combining everything you're kind of like spreading the hedging your bets in a way yeah i think you know, okay well if i'm because it's all depending on on the person's lifestyle and genetics and everything else um then you're kind of like thinking, I've got a little bit of most things that are likely to be good for me. And I think that's that's the, be the, the best bet. Okay, best you're looking, yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're looking at, you know, particular situations of like mental health, you know, anxiety, yeah. the studies are still very embryonic. Mm -hmm. So there are some, some uh, probiotics that, you know, like Bifidobacterium longum, for mm -hmm. example. There's a couple of strains that have been used in anxiety, depression, with with good effects. But my only issue with that is that most studies are done for a month. They are really expensive to do studies, yeah. uh, especially when you're taking loads of measures as well. So it's not just like, I feel better. Yeah, It's not just a questionnaire. When you're taking bloods and poo samples and everything, it goes into hundreds of thousands of pounds mm -hmm. to a study that is anything to write home about. So I would just say, have expectations that are realistic because I'll mention another another study that was just published um, earlier this year 
researchers at the University uh, of Santiago de Chile, it's, it's on a Chilean study. They looked at um, people taking probiotics and they looked at the, their lifestyle and they looked at different health measures. And they basically uh, concluded that the reason why the group that took the probiotics versus the group that didn't take the probiotics felt better was not because the probiotics themselves, but because of the lifestyle factors that they engaged in. Okay. Uh -huh. So, you know, they were, you know, they created subgroups basically when they analyzed the whole study. Yeah. But they looked at people who were less stressed, for example, or who had, uh, they called them more positive life um yeah, lifestyle behaviors okay. so basically they went out in nature more or they talked to friends more often and they met socially so yeah. all of those things we are complex beings yeah. so if you just try to reduce it to i'm just going to continue with my life as it is uh, maybe in an unhealthy relationship uh, maybe with myself with my partner with work which is massive you know toxic environments at work are massive yeah. i'm gonna take this you know um bifida bacterium blah blah and yeah it's gonna me out yeah yeah it's gonna add a little angle uh -huh. if you put all of those other things in place but if you just continue doing what you're doing and not allowing time for yourself to cook healthy meals mm -hmm. to do your exercise mm -hmm. uh, again exercise massive positive association between exercise and movement in general with changes to positive changes to your microbiome um more diversity it's almost like when you're out and about doing stuff you're breathing your microbiome and you're implementing that into your own also if you just at home like doing more a few weights or you know you have a bike at home it doesn't need to be a super expensive super complicated thing whatever you're doing when you're moving you're engaging your muscles, you're engaging your um, mitochondria and your muscles yeah. as well. There's that relationship between that and the health of your um, gut flora. You're making your, your gut work because it's a muscle and the muscle, again, another very interesting thing, people talk about leaky gut. Um, leaky gut happens all the time when you eat yeah the gut goes a little bit leaky it's part of how you get your nutrients, your nutrients into your bloodstream. In, yeah, yeah and people get really freaked out by that yeah. but there's a lot of interesting correlations between positive behaviors and things that you can do that everybody knows are good for them a healthy relationship with your employer a healthy relationship with your partner uh, being generally happier in life not because of the things around you, but because you are happy inside. Mm -hmm. If you look at all of those things, then they have an impact on your, on how drug is going to work. Yeah. And because we're looking at uh, probiotics in a very pharmacological way, yeah. we basically, the studies just look at them as if it was a drug intervention, you know, uh, inflammation goes down, you know, all of these kind of like markers that yeah. you look at, yeah. the kind of, um, as if you were giving somebody a drug that's been made in a lab, yeah. but you're putting something live that lives in a community of microbes, you isolated it and you're taking that. So it's likely to do something good, but it's not going to sort out your life. Yeah, absolutely. So the marginal effect is there, but you can extract much more of an effect if you, you know, do all the other lifestyle things in addition to 
the probiotic that you choose. Yeah, definitely. So. And if you wanted to really go into a you know a health optimization kind of thing, that uh-huh. you know I like the term, but it also freaks me out. There's a, <laughs> a lot of obsession in that. Yeah, I would go for choose your strains. Okay, for particular situations okay. and really well studied strains and then add a prebiotic that's going to fit those strains and it's going to fit the rest of your microbes. So I really like a prebiotic that's called galacto oligosaccharides okay. or uh-huh. GOS. Gosh. Yeah. Um, it's very similar to something that you get from your mom if you've been breastfed. Mm-hmm. So it's very similar to human um, um, oligosaccharides that are really well studied because mm-hmm. they give you kind of like the start of life. Mm. Uh, they feed your bifidobacteria. Uh, really, a really nice affinity with bifidobacteria, potentially with some lactobacteria, uh, lactobacillus as mm-hmm. well, but definitely with bifidobacterium, mm-hmm. um, potentially with other bugs as well. Bifidobacterium mm-hmm. then is a really clever microbe and has good relationships with other microbes in the in the community. Mm-hmm. So by feeding your bifido and keeping it happy, you're doing a service to the whole of the community. Yeah. Um, so if you wanted to go that step further mm-hmm. i would say focus on feeding your microbes mm-hmm. a good prebiotic by means of your diet yeah by making your diet more prebiotic naturally with fiber mm-hmm. with like your healthy salads your diversity bowls that yeah. you do yeah. are amazing yeah. that is like your bifidobacteria kind of like going yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and then add if you want to add something that is broad spectrum is well studied mm-hmm. and it's a nice prebiotic for your bifido Inulin can be good as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm less inclined to use inulin on a regular basis. There's been some preclinical studies, actually, again, just looking at how people, dif- um, uh, they respond differently to, to different interventions. So if you tend to have um, a susceptibility to inflammatory bowel conditions, and it may be hidden, and you're feeding yourself uh, inulin, it may make that worse. So there's been, again, it's just preclinical. There's been a couple of very small human studies as well, looking at how type two inflammation, which is inflammation in the lungs. Um, so people with asthma, for example, will have that or COPD. Um, if you feed yourself inulin, you may be uh, increasing the susceptibility for that type two oh, inflammation. Interesting. It's genetic. Huh. So just because of that, yeah. I, I wouldn't not have inulin. Yeah. So if it's in something that you're having and it's like one of the ingredients, fine. Mm. I wouldn't have 20 grams of inulin gotcha. every yeah. day. Yeah, devil's in the dose. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if, if you have a multi watset, you know, powder with a bit of inulin, fine. There's a difference between doing that and going hammer and tongue for inulin and like, yeah. you know, 20 grams, 50 grams. People do crazy things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with gauze, apart from getting a lot of wind, if yeah. you have 50 grams of gauze, you'll probably go to the toilet Yeah. and you'll have a lot of wind. Yeah. It's it's very, very safe. Yeah. And uh, and it's a good regulator as well for people with IBS. Uh-huh. So IBS that fluctuates from diarrhea to constipation Goss is is a nice kind of a regulator ah, to bring okay. you back back to balance. Mm. 
Look, there's loads of info in there in terms of um, what you've just said about the general sort of probiotics. Look for a multi-strain. Go for something that has some prebiotic effect as well. Um, ensure you're having diversity, lots of fiber. Um, I want to get into the human side because what you just mentioned there about us consuming a live product that goes into a live community in our digestive system that is part of us and our community around in, in the attractions that we have in the real world, whether it be stress, work, et cetera. You know, we sometimes can get quite focused and uh, and laser on um, just the, the chemical processes of everything and, and everything being binary. And I remember the first time I met you a few years ago, and you're rattling off the, um, the your sort of background, the number of degrees you've got. And I was like, wow, how on earth does this guy do all this work? And and you recently got a diagnosis of ADHD. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So the ADHD three years ago, and recently um, um, autism spectrum disorder or autistic. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about the your experience and, mm-hmm. and how you how you've got to that. Um but perhaps before, perhaps I've made a mistake of assuming that the audience know exactly what we mean by neurodevelopmental disorders, neurodivergence and all these terms that we throw around, ADHD, autism. Maybe we should take a step back and just go through what those are. Um, perhaps the traditional diagnosis method mm-hmm. and why a lot more people are finding out that they actually have um, uh, this uh, afflicting them and, and have uh, has afflicted them throughout their whole life, but they're finding out a lot later in, in their life. Yeah, certainly. So there's uh, a book that's a manual, it's called the Diagnostic um, Statistical uh, Manual for um mental health disorders so the dsm Mm -hmm. there are different versions of it Um, i think we're on two six soon but it's literally like a like a guide um, that will give you every potential explanation for somebody who is diagnosing somebody else with a mental health condition and they need to tick all the boxes Mm -hmm. so you have pages and pages you know for everything for depression for postnatal depression for anxiety for different types of anxiety for you know ADHD autism everything else, everything is in there now the book is called disorders manual of disorders right so um what is emerging uh lately as a kind of like movement is the fact that yes there may be disorders in some cases because they affect that person's ability to deal with life mm-hmm. and that is going to basically is their life will not be ordered so from that point of view yes but there are lots of people who just happen to approach life in a different way because their brain is slightly different. It works in a slightly different way. That, that to me means that we have, just as we have different types of people with different ears and different skin and different you know races or whatever, we also have like different neurotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, a, a kind of like movement that is growing. You're looking at, ADHD and uh, and autism particularly. So you have, when you, you talk about autism and there's a lot of stigma about autism because people immediately think, you know, non-verbal, yeah. extremely, you know, unable to communicate, mm-hmm. somebody who just looks down and like an extremely difficult child that is just basically gonna have a very difficult life. And, and because it's a spectrum, it can be like that. Mm-hmm. 
and and there's no doubt that that person is going to need a lot of support and it needs to be there for them at the other end of the spectrum you have what used to be called high functioning which i hate because then it kind of like creates it's like oh you must be high functioning and itself is kind of a very ableist way of talking so um you have somebody who may actually experience the world in a completely different way and they may be suffering as a result but they they have masked around that suffering and they are not showing to everybody else that they are suffering because you adapt and you may feel that you don't fit in from early age but you create coping mechanisms around that so you know typically with ADHD is you create uh you know AD, again you generalize but you know joking and you know being the funny guy or whatever that can be a coping mechanism because if you don't fit in and you're bullied if you make the bully laugh then probably they're not going to bully you anymore because you're going to be the funny guy mm-hmm. so instead of the weird guy mm-hmm. and that was definitely my experience i was bullied like you know all through school and mm-hmm. you know never fitted in and and everything else and uh and i think that that to me was like a coping mechanism you know if i'm funny then i'm kind of like i can get away from the situation where i maybe you know my sports bike is going to end up in the toilet again mm-hmm. so um so there is that uh there is the the fact that a lot of people are actually missed out by the system because you create those those ways to behave around the system so you you're not singled out because you don't want to be like constantly tapping like that and being told off by the yeah. teacher. So you internalize that hyperactivity, which is textbook, what happens in adulthood. So a lot of people have gone through their childhood being a little bit like, you know, the naughty child, the, you know, loud child, whatever. I ticked all the boxes when I had my assessment. Uh, the forgetful child, uh, you know, problematic, um, all the rest of it. Um, then you get to about 15, like the sex hormones kind of like kick in, you know, you turn into a a little adult Mm. and you start seeing the world, you know, I don't want to be singled out all the time. I want to fit in. I want to be part of a community. I want to have mates. I don't want to be the weird one that only has, you know, billion or mates with like absolutely no friends. So you start creating an environment that suits you so you can thrive. Uh, So you could end up in like your 30s, your 40s, and suddenly something is not clicking, you just feel overwhelmed and your brain tells you, you know, there's something going on and it's not depression. It looks like anxiety, but it's just not anxiety. It's kind of weird. And then you end up being told you're ADHD. So I understand that a lot of people are kind of like trivializing this because they are saying, oh, everybody's got an ADHD diagnosis or everybody's got an autistic diagnosis. Those are people that have been failed by the system because the system has actually just focused on the very extreme cases that do need to be focused on and they deserve all the attention. It doesn't mean that those people haven't actually suffered as a result and they've been bullied and and assaulted and, uh, you know, abused and everything else. And there's a lot of literature actually documenting all of this. People who are um, neurodivergent have got an increased risk of all of those things because they are more likely to miss the cues in society that tell them that you need to blend in and they'll go and you know like i did and had like black nails at 14 and thought that it was fine to in post-franco spain 
uh, to have like, you know, red hair one day and black hair the next day and, you know, and wear like women's clothes one day and then the next day like men's clothes. And, you know, I would, if you looked at me when I was 15, I probably non-binary didn't exist at the time, but I was very much like, you know, I didn't care. I didn't kind of like thought, I didn't think this shop is for, for men for men, and this shop is for women. I just went in, I just got whatever I wanted and I wore it. Um, and uh, um, I got beaten up a couple of times, like quite badly. There's a, a lot of these things actually happen to, to people and you kind of, uh, it's a reminder that you need to fit in. Yeah. Uh, you know, sexual abuse is massive as well in in this kind of like community. And again, it kind of like makes you retreat even more because you don't want to put yourself in a situation where again, you're going to be, to be exposed to that kind of like trauma. So I can understand again that people say everybody's got ADHD these days and it's been trivialized and and people jokingly say you're very ADHD or you're a bit OCD. You're either OCD because you're OCD or ADHD or uh, autistic or you're not. It's not something that people just come up and say, I just want to be ADHD. There may be a perverse case that somebody is kind of like trying to milk it for whatever reason, but I would say like 99.9%. Why would you put yourself through yeah. an assessment which is traumatic in its own right? Because yeah. it makes you rewrite your history and question everything that's happened in your life in a different light. Uh, you need to come out to people in a way or keep it to yourself. There's so many things that happen that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think anybody would just do it for the attention to be quite honest. It's very short lived at the end of the day. You tell somebody it may be a shock and then what happens? You know, so it's, if you're doing it for attention, it's the wrong thing to do for attention because like people will be shocked for two days and then they'll forget about it. When you went through your diagnosis process and you started looking at your life through the lens of someone with um, ADHD, what, where were the penny drops for you? I mean, you, you mentioned some already with, you know, uh, your um uh, habits as a as a teenager, your coping mechanisms. Uh, did you also see that through the much younger formative years of your life and during your your professional career as well in academia? Yeah, definitely. So if you go my earlier years, there was definitely open to substance abuse, substance abuse you know, from early age. Alcohol wasn't a big attraction to me, but everything else was. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, definitely that was that. Uh, I was going out with girls and boys and, you know, it was all going for me. It, mm. it didn't matter. Um, I was weirdly uh, quite good in school. So I did really well, but then I was always told off by the teachers that I was like being problematic. I was, you know, I was a joker and I was uh, I always hooked up with like the wrong guns as well. So basically, if there was somebody who was problematic, that would be my friend. That would be your friend. And okay. my mom was like, oh, why are you going out with the twins? <laughs> it was like a like a new neighborhood that was uh, built next to my house. And uh, and there were these two twin girls who were completely like dreadful. <laughs> they were like really badly behaved. They would have got an asbo, you know, if they were in England because <laughs> they were really, really awful. And they were like my best mates. And like I remember at one point they lived in the, like this like council tower 
and uh, they were chucking eggs at people from like the 12th floor. Oh, wow. And like, you know, and I'm there and I'm thinking, why am I hanging out with these people? But <laughs> I think it was like the the excitement. Yeah. So I didn't want to be like friends with like the boring kids. I wanted to be like on the edge of, uh-huh. uh, you know, something that was a little bit like risky. Yeah. And yeah. there is definitely that. And I've put myself through situations where, you know, there has been risk in my life uh, many times. When you look at like later life, um, I think one of the things that happens in neurodivergence in general, and people talk about neurodiverse, neurodiversity, neurodivergence. Yeah, so yeah. Neuro, that neurodivergence basically means that your neuro, the way that your brain works diverges from the norm. Okay. And... Uh, Again, I, I do get a little bit funny about the terms, not so much about the microbiome, but about this. Sure. Because yeah. there's uh, normal, <laughs> yeah. and then there's normative, which is basically normal doesn't exist because nothing is normal. There's yeah. that normativity, which is basically what society says is normal. But then society is, is a bit crazy. So, you know, what is normal anyway? Yeah. So if you diverge from that normativity, from the norm, then that is neurodivergent. And it's also a kind of like an identity. So there's schools of thought now saying, you know, if your brain works in a different way and you're bipolar, you're like, you know, you're chronically anxious, that is a a form of neurodivergence. Typically it's ADHD, autism, Mm -hmm. OCD, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Tourette's. um, So, but then the other forms of, mental conditions might also self-identify as neurodivergence just because they don't see the world in a different in the same way as the norm mm-hmm. and neurodiversity you cannot be neurodiverse so like neurodiverse is a group you cannot be a person who has neurodiversity and people throw these terms around right these days yeah so there's that there is that but i look at for example one of the key things that happens in neurodivergence is emotional regulation and overwhelm because your world works in a slightly different way to the world that you're living in. And sometimes everything kind of like flows and it's just a little pinch and you can cope with it. But when the pinch becomes too much, whether it's toxicity at work, for example, I've experienced that a couple of times. And if you also have an awareness of what your values are and you're very clear on those and and I think the journey for many people who get a late diagnosis is very introspective. It certainly has been for me. So for me, more than a label, and me kind of like saying, I'm this, I'm that, I'm autistic, I'm ADHD, it's more about how it's made me look at my life and actually think, who am I? Who do I want to be? Am I the best version of myself without stressing myself out and thinking I always need to be the best version? Sometimes it's a crap version and that's today, you know, it could be tomorrow or whatever. And then the following three days, you, you're you better and it all balances out. You know, there's a lot of this like fake positivity. Mm. It's made me look a lot um, at how I've processed emotions in the past and how I didn't know how to label my emotions for many years. So I lost my best friend to suicide in 1998. Um, I lost my brother to cancer when I was eight and he was terminal for three years. Um, And I I was looking back to those memories of like loss and and I I didn't know what I was feeling. 
like I can understand when I was eight, I was very young, but then I can definitely, I can remember things from the nineties, even though they were wild, but I can remember, I cannot remember what it felt to lose my friend. And I think everybody's brain has got the ability to block negative memories because they are painful and it's a normal uh, kind of like, it's, it's your typical coping mechanism. When you are neurodivergent, your emotional regulation, the, the limbic system, this um, um, set of different structures in the brain that deals with your emotions, with how you react to the environment, with threat. It can be hypervigilant, which is how I felt all my life. And it's still a struggle. So something that is tiny for anybody else, it may be a really big deal for me. Now, am I telling you about this uh, in a in a massive kind of way? Am I letting you know? No, because if I do that, it's going to make me look weird. It's going to make me feel like, oh, this guy is just oversharing, you know, about his private life or whatever. So, so you mask it. So you kind of like pretend that you're okay. Yeah. But it may be a really big deal. It may be that, you know, there's a massive amount of anxiety for coming here today and being here with you. Uh, but then randomly, I hadn't looked at the address until this morning and I'm being driven to the, the tube station by my other half at the other end of London. And, and he's saying, I cannot believe you haven't actually looked at the address. I said, well, actually, it's, I have looked at it, but I haven't looked at the route. I'll look at So I could freak out about something that's going to happen. You know, like I used to go clubbing a lot in the 90s. I used to know exactly what I was wearing <laughs> like a week before and kind of like fantasize about the whole thing. I knew um, if I was going to take the night bus back, uh, when I was going to take the night bus back, uh, you know, if I was going to get off my face, when was the last time I could take something so then I could be like, you know, I could control <laughs> so to go and take the night bus back. I kind of like plant it all like, yeah, like yeah. that. If I was going to a festival, I, I had to book the ticket like, you know, three months in advance. I could like, you know, and then I was wild at the festival, but you know, there was all of that kind of thing. So there's like, like quirks. Yeah. Uh, and emotional regulation for me is massive. It's that kind of ability to, to not feel overwhelmed by, you know, like in American beauty, there's that, you know, there's so much beauty, I cannot cope with it. Well, my life is like that in like HD. So I feel everything, like people think about autistic people, they don't feel, they don't have empathy. I feel everything like, you know, a hundred times more than maybe somebody who doesn't have that trait because it's, you know, that that ability to pick up things from the environment. And I've, and sometimes when I'm, I feel quite calm, I can cope with it, but some other times it can be too much in my brain. So it's that learning how to do all of those things that for many years I just took for granted. I just thought my brain is wacky I'm just like that. I haven't got a name for it. It is not a condition. Mm. Uh, and uh, I just put up with myself in a way until a diagnosis actually helped me understand myself a little bit better. Mm. And then for me, it's been a journey of discovery and actually just um, realizing that I have my values that are really important for me. Um, uh, and that I need to live life by those values. I need to be authentic and I need to be um genuine in what I do I need to be happy with what I do and have a lot less resilience for crap that happens in my life so I'm very averse to crap now so whereas before I could actually put up in a situation that was fairly toxic for a long time 
now the moment that I have a whiff of toxicity, I just need to get out of it because it's just not aligned with who I want to be. So in a way, um, that's been my my journey of uh, of self-discovery. And also, there's no treatment for autism. It's just kind of like learning yeah. to know yourself better. I've had some psychotherapy, which has been really useful after the diagnosis. Um, just learning, coming to terms, because initially I had this massive imposter syndrome about being autistic. I'm thinking, how the hell am I autistic? It's like, I look at people in the eye, almost like freakishly in the eye like that. Uh, um, you know, like some of the things kind of like did make sense, like I can be really direct or I can maybe like miss a cue, but I have a sense of humor. Um, yeah. You know, I can empathize, you know, almost too much and pick up loads of crap from people even when I don't want to. Um, so I, I didn't see it clearly. I had this kind of like massive stress about not being autist, or, uh, um, autistic and I had been told by the psychiatrist that I was. Yeah. Uh, and she did say, you know, that you're gonna need some psychotherapy to just come to terms because you you are kind of like textbook, but you're not at the same time. And, you know, it's kind of like a weird combination. Everybody's diagnosis is different. Yeah. So you haven't got this typical, you know, very rarely in adulthood, have you got this typical, you know, somebody who looks at the eye, retreats, and is inward all the time. That may happen if they pick it up when you're seven, but not when you're like, you know, when you're 50. And with ADHD, I was prescribed medication initially, yeah. and I was going through a rough time anyway, because I think all of this that I told you about, going back to trauma from childhood and you know, losing my brother, like sexual abuse and all sorts of things. I was, it was just resonating in my mind a lot at the time. And I was in a massively toxic environment at work as well that I had to let go of. Uh, and I was just completely burnt out. Now it makes sense looking at it from the autistic ADHD uh, lens now, looking through that lens, you realize that there's a thing uh, about autistic ADHD burnout which is basically just not coping with the environment. And it's like regular burnout, but really intense because of the intensity of the emotions that you feel. So I, um, I uh, taking the medication kind of like helped me get up in the morning. I had um, chronic pain syndrome as well. So I didn't know what it was. My sister has got a weird autoimmune thing and I thought it was going to be that. So I was kind of like freaking out and yeah. then I was told it was fibromyalgia, and uh, which was a bit of a label, you know, yeah, because it's yeah. so difficult. Yeah. There's no, literally, there's no treatment. It's just, oh, it must be stress. I mean, like, hello, you're gonna get the Nobel Prize here. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to cope with a lot of stuff, and I think the medication helped me kind of like get up. And it's almost like having a triple espresso. Yeah. It just gives you that. And it's the first thing that you do. It's a bit literally empty stomach. The moment I opened my eyes, I took the meds. And like half an hour later, I was alert. And I kind of like made sense of the world. And what which meds were you on? Just I was on methylphenidate, so okay. a Ritalin, but mm. like long release. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this thing called Concerta. Uh, mm. And uh, it's, uh, I've tried some other ones as well. So the amphetamine base as opposed to the methylphenidate pretty much the same kind of thing. So uh, um, nice, but kind of uh, made me remove a little bit of the emotional me 
So it made me almost like look at myself from the outside and think, oh, I'm doing cool, but it felt a bit weird. It almost felt like I was on drugs. And having had the experience of doing drugs recreationally, it felt very borderline. Mm -hmm. And then there's this whole thing that you talk to people who, you know, I had a couple of friends, three friends diagnosed. They were trying different medications as well. One was really struggling with that as well, saying, I don't want to think about it as in I'm taking something recreational because it makes me feel like a fraud. So I want to think about it as in my brain needs it. I'm thinking, right, okay, well, I want to keep an open mind, but certainly I don't want to see myself at like 70 taking something that's going through my body every day because I wouldn't do it with anything else that I, you know, I mean, if you need something really urgent, then you go through that treatment. But something that you're going to take chronically all yeah. the time, yeah. I'm just thinking, this is taxing my body, my beats per minute were, were higher, my, you know, I'm yeah. thinking it's putting a pressure on my cardiovascular system. It's all very well that my brain works better with it, but I started feeling a bit weird about like taking them and I just went cold turkey and I stopped. Yeah. So I went through a bit of a rough patch, you know, a couple of weeks, of course, yeah. a month, yeah, that I yeah. felt a bit weird. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh... Well, it is quite interesting that you were just talking about how diverse people's experiences are mm -hmm. of ADHD, yet the treatment is very binary. Yeah, exactly. And I think with that in mind, you know, you said that there isn't a treatment. I think one of the things that you've learned is setting boundaries, for example, mm -hmm. not dealing with toxic environments that you would have otherwise endured prior to that. So I think in, in a way, your treatment it comes out perhaps less so in a in a pharmaceutical manner, but more so in a psychological and a in a literal environment manner where you, you can you can set those um Absolutely, 100%. I think the, the change for me has been about knowing myself and almost going back to, you know, like 20 years ago, I wanted to be a yoga teacher. It's like, you know, you were asking me about like, you know, what have you done professionally? That was a bit wacky. Well, I've told a couple of people to bugger <laughs> off my life, you know, literally, and just like walked off. I remember like the first time I came to London in 94 and I had a you know, I was temping and doing bits and bobs and, you know, uh, whatever. And like at one point in 95, I was working for the Japanese Travel Bureau because um, I did some work practice with the Japanese Travel Bureau in Madrid. And right. I love Japan. I love everything about Japan, yeah, Japanese yeah. culture and whatever. Yeah. I'm like completely obsessed. So I was like in my element working with Japanese people and picking up some of the language and whatever. And like I had this British woman who was my boss and she was doing my head in and I just <laughs> shouted at her like, you know, yeah, I'm not going to say it, but basically I just like <laughs> shouted very rude to her. And I basically, <laughs> and the whole office just like stood still. It was like a moment froze in time. All Japanese people just couldn't believe what had just happened. And uh, and then he just took me to a room and said, you're fired. And I said, well, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I was pretty clear I was fired. So that was kind of like a, a big extreme. Yeah. I've, I've done it a couple of times, but not in that kind of like so extreme kind of like fashion. Uh, but then, yeah, I had this thing. I was working in um, uh, medical publishing uh, for many years. And uh, I kind of like thought, I'm going to become a yoga teacher. This is what I did before doing my my nutrition uh, yeah. degree. I'm going to become a yoga teacher. So I did the whole, I couldn't just do like ADHD. When you fixate, you want to do like the best. You cannot right. just do like yeah. a week's course. Yeah. It has to be the all singing and dancing. 
um, British Wheel of Yoga, three years, yeah. every weekend is like a like a degree, basically. Yeah. So I went through all of that. Wow. And uh, I said to my sister, my sister is like my number one fan. I love her to bits. She's like my soulmate. And I said, you know, uh, I want to go to Spain and, you know, uh, my mom and dad have a place in the south of Spain near Malaga. And like, oh, the mountains are so amazing. They're a bit like California. Uh, just get a little plot and just build a yoga center. And like my sister is like, you know, she was doing quite well at the time. And her and her husband at the time just like bought this little plot of land for me. <laughs> and like, I'm thinking, okay. And then like six months later, oh no, I'm not being a yoga teacher. All right. Like, just, <laughs> yeah. You know, I lost interest. <laughs> you know, I did a few classes and I thought, no, this is not for me. I'm right. going to be like doing yoga teaching forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kept a lot of what I learned right, for yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I kind yeah. of like went from that, from being completely intensely focused on that to like, what was yoga again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, you can see these patterns, right? Yeah, your, yeah. Your, your life. Definitely. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have got similar patterns but then they experience life in a different way so you're right it's uh there are a few types of meds that you can get uh there's the ones that are stimulants that are kind of like based on something that you know largely looks like speed they are not really prescribed that much uh -huh. so most people will just go on your retilin yeah. uh, and uh you know your dexamphetamine or kind of like that those variations like that there's lisamphetamine now as well that is quite popular because it's kind of like slow release. Mm -hmm. But from what I know from people who I have talked to, they need to play around a lot with the doses. And, you know, if you look at the symptoms, they may have more or less the same symptoms, yeah. but then they need to play around with a morning dose, an afternoon dose, a short release. So I was given long release and then short release. Sure, release felt a bit cheeky because it was almost like, you know, you just did a bit of coke. Or yeah, something. yeah. It just felt like really, yeah, borderline. Um, and it was quite intense for an hour and then it just like came down. And then I was feeling a little bit towards the end of the day. Um, my other half was saying, you're very, you know, you're shouting at me. I'm saying, I'm not shouting. <laughs> So I, I, I was struggling to regulate. So I was thinking this is defeating the object. Yeah. I think the, the, the um, deal breaker for me was to think that my brain was actually trumping the drugs. So what the drugs were supposed to do, they had done it. And they saw me through the 18 months that I took them. And then my brain was starting to think, all right, okay, so this is what's going to happen. Now I'm going to take this and blah, blah. And all of the things that I wasn't supposed to be doing, like, you know, doing nothing until 11 in the morning mm -hmm. and watching Netflix when I woke up because I didn't fancy working and thinking I'm going to watch a couple of episodes of whatever and then start at 11 instead of, you know, I started doing that again, right. but I was on the meds and I'm yeah. thinking there's no point. Yeah, yeah. The whole point is that I'm going to have a more productive day. I'm going to be happier with that and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go to cold turkey. And instead I've kind of like put together my own method which is um, if we rewind the YouTube or the podcast, a lot of what we talked about, yeah. you know, the fiber, the uh, prebiotic or fermented foods. And again, everybody will need to play around with everything because yeah. it's not, there's no real protocol that anybody can just pick up. Everybody's going to have different degrees of success with it. But I think, you know, um, in general, taking into account what you're trying to achieve, which is to calm down a hyperactive, central nervous system that is in hypervigilant state. Yeah. 
to give your prefrontal cortex a little bit more oxygen and nutrients so it kind of like works better and that's the bit behind the forehead so it's logic um, decision making yeah. changing from one thing to another feeling alert focused that kind of thing and they are really nice um, supplements as well that you can incorporate into your routine Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say all about them because I want people to go and like check out my course and yeah, put yeah. it together. I was going to say yeah. the course is something that should be out by the time this goes yeah. and that's going to walk people through yeah. what we were just talking about at the start of this pod yeah. but also a bit more about targeted supplementation and, yeah. and those elements. Are yeah. there any broad supplements that you recommend? Uh, I mean, I think with with my view on, on supplements, it really has to be targeted yeah. and it has to be real purposeful and I think I, I don't want to risk someone just listening to this pod and be like, oh, they said Q10 or, oh, they said a you know, B vitamin complex or whatever. Yeah. And they just bundle that into a shopping cart and start taking that every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but are there, are there specific ones that you think? Yeah. So I'm going to mention two okay. that I, I like. So um, if you look at B vitamins, they're always good for everything. Yeah. Like anything <laughs> to do with the brain, yeah. you know, B vitamins, you cannot go wrong. Yeah. But B6, particularly, when you're looking, this is like a bit of an indirect thing. Mm-hmm. So why are you going to struggle with emotional regulation, get aggy during the day, or, you know, uh, your coffee is going to heat in too much and then you feel a bit freaked out or whatever. Probably your sleep hasn't been as restful as you needed. Mm-hmm. B6 and sleep okay. is, you know, a nice pair. Okay. So if you have a nice B6, I like a form of B6 that's called P5P. P5P? P5P, yeah. Pyridoxal 5-phosphate, Okay. I think it's called, yeah. So it's, um, as you know, there could be B6 oxide or something in like one of the shops that's yeah, really crap, it's yeah, like yeah. three pounds. Yeah. And then, you know. But this, again, I always have in mind that people don't have huge budgets yeah. and I don't go for things that are silly and you can only get from the States yeah, or whatever. Yeah. It's available on Amazon, Yeah, yeah. good quality, lab tested, mm-hmm. whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it'd be like a tenner for a month. Mm, yeah. So um, about 50 milligrams. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't want to prescribe to anybody. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like that's the kind of like dose uh, for a nice basics that's going to have that kind of effect. So taken in the evening is going to allow you to wind down. It's one of the building blocks in that uh, serotonin and melatonin production line. Because right. serotonin and melatonin are kind of uh, really similar to each other. They are in the same kind of like pathway or production line. So you're feeding into that process especially if you've had tryptophan rich foods during the day as well. So your beans or your, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you have those and then you have a better ability to transform that tryptophan into nice, absorbable, beneficial forms of tryptophan that will do what they need to do in the brain, including making melatonin. And uh, so that's a favorite of mine, not, because it's gonna make you super acutely focused on everything. Like, you know, oh, my ADHD is cured. It's because it's gonna give you a really nice quality sleep or make it better. Mm -hmm. And then you're gonna have a better day the following day. So building block. And then another one is um, um, saffron. So saffron has, um, apart from being amazing as a spice, I love it, we use it a lot in Spain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's got really interesting antioxidants uh-huh. 
that have got an affinity with um, brain cells. So what I was saying to you that when the brain is working and it's a big kind of like machinery computer inside your skull, there's so much activity that is heating up and there's kind of like smoke and your immune cells, the glial cells, they get a bit activated. Mm -hmm. They actually call activated glial cells or microglia. When they do that, the way that the immune system works, one of the way that it works is by producing peroxide. Mm -hmm. um, and peroxide, if anybody knows about peroxide, bleaches your hair. It kind of like strips, it's like bleach. Yeah. So you're basically producing natural forms of bleach inside an enclosed space in the skull that finds it very difficult to self-regulate during the day because it's really busy making you conscious of things and you know making sure that everything is ticking along. And it starts kind of like cleaning up when you're asleep. Mm -hmm. So again, B6, better sleep, better cleaning up mm -hmm. of the brain. Um, saffron and the saffron antioxidants have also been looked at um, as an alternative for complementary treatment for ADHD. Um, the studies are small and they're kind of uh, on certain cohorts as well, so more like children. Okay. But then again, the politics of science are important. ADHD yeah. is associated with children, with, with male children. Yeah. So there's going to be more funding for that kind of cohort than for females in their 20s or something. So you need to take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah. But also it's super safe. Yeah. So you cannot overdose, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's not super expensive. Uh -huh. So a nice kind of um, saffron, saffron complex. Well, saffron like, is more expensive than gold, right? It is, <laughs> the yeah, spice. But the supplements, so there but are it's... certain supplements that contain uh, the standardized extra extract, ah, which okay. tends to be about 3.5% gotcha. of the saffron Strand, antioxidants. Gotcha, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that basically is what has been used in certain studies. Amazing. And and again, none of the supplements by themselves do like, this is the cure. Of course, yeah, yeah. It's the combination. But yeah. for me, for anybody, everybody's welcome to like go and get on the course and, and pay me. Yeah. But the most important thing, do it for the right reason. Do it because you want the change to happen. Yeah. Not because you think the curcumin or the whatever is going yeah. to, you know, the suffering is going to sort you out. Yeah. If you combine the, you're wanting to change something for the better, and that's coming from within, and you're going to honor the time that it takes for to, to, to feel better. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to honor your values and and your lifestyle choices and everything else. And then you put that layer on top, that's guaranteed to have a, a much better uh, rate of success than if you just add those things and then you continue to have toxicity in your life. Totally. You continue to ignore yeah. the cues that the environment is giving you. So I think that's that's the kind of a ideal situation when you're combining the two. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Miguel, I, I could talk to you for so much longer about not just this subject, but other subjects as well. Like we haven't even touched about on, you know, the differences between quote, unquote normal and neurodivergence and like how one might go about even thinking about diagnosis or therapy for it. I think we're going to have to do that on another pod if if you'd come yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But um, I just want to thank you for your vulnerability your analogies they're brilliant the way you communicate science is phenomenal you know the the amount of work that you've done is is brilliant people can look it up uh in the show notes that we'll put down as well your studies um 
and for you, you know, just the, the shared experience, I really hope this is going to help a lot of people think and rethink their life if they, they might find that there are some patterns that they haven't addressed before. So I really appreciate time. No, man. thank Honestly. you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. That was great, man. I appreciate you. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs>